Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. All right. So, um, and can everyone see my slides? Yep, we're good on the slides. Perfect. So um, first I wanna thank uh, the coordinators of the, um, this Empire Lecture Series and also the New York section for inviting me to give this presentation. This is a presentation that's really geared towards residents and medical students um, as these are, uh, I'm talking about really a lot of physiology um, and pathophysiology about uh, micturition. So my talk is titled Neural Pathways of Micturition. I have no disclosures. And so, you know, talking about neural pathways and neurourology, why is it so important to learn? So number one, you know, the central nervous system disorders, they're a frequent cause of voiding dysfunction. Two, timely management of these voiding dysfunctions can avoid irreversible adverse outcomes. But more importantly, for the residents and trainees, these are very common test questions for, for the in-service, the written boards, and the oral boards. So here's a brief outline of my talk today. We're gonna to talk about the normal lower urinary tract physiology. We'll talk about briefly evaluation of neurourologic disorders. We'll talk about the categorization of disorders by level of neurologic lesion. And then we'll briefly also talk about treatment options. All right, so to talk about the, phys the normal physiology first. So uh, the bladder itself has two basic physiologic functions. So if you think about it in your head as two basically buckets, um, it, of function. One is storage. So it needs to provide a low pressure uh, storage that provides adequate volume with normal sensation. And the second function is voiding. And so you want the bladder to be able to provide periodic voluntary voiding that's uh, performed in a coordinated and a complete fashion. So what's involved in micturition? Well, the anatomy involved is um, obviously the bladder but also the bladder neck, the external urethral sphincter, and the urethra. And then as far as the neural pathways involved, it involves the peripheral nervous system, which includes the autonomic system. So both the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems, as well as the somatic system, where you have the afferents giving sensory information and the efferents giving motor control. So let's break that, break that down even further. If you look at, if you think about the parasympathetics, the parasympathetic pathways are used to excite the bladder or contract the bladder and to relax the urethral smooth muscles. So if you think about it, the parasympathetics are um, used for voiding. The sympathetics are used to inhibit the bladder body. Um, so that's to prevent contractions of the bladder and to excite the bladder base and urethra to close the outlet. So that's more important in your storage um, function. And then the somatic systems are used to excite the external urethral sphincter um, and to provide sensory input from the bladder. So um, we're going to go even deeper down into this because um, these are these this information, although it seems very, very um, detailed, are questions that can come up on your in-service exam and the, the um, written boards. Um, so let's take a look at the parasympathetic pathways. And if you remember from medical school, you had preganglionic neurons and postganglionic neurons. So let's talk about where they're located and how, and how they travel. So if you look at the preganglionic neurons of the parasympathetic system, 
they're located in the lateral part of the sacral parasympathetic nucleus of the spinal cord. So what you need to remember there is that's S2 to S4. So the sacral nerve roots, at, um, S2 to S4 is where you'll find the preganglionic neurons. The axons of those preganglionic neurons will then travel through the ventral roots to peripheral ganglionic cells. Um, and then that's where they'll innervate postganglionic neurons, which are generally located in the detrusor wall itself, so in the, and, and in the target organ or in um, the pelvic plexus. And what they do is initiate bladder contraction, like I mentioned earlier. So this is um, showing this in more of a, a schematic form if people like, if people um, prefer pictures. Um, if you look at the parasympathetic um, system, the yellow here are the, the preganglionic fiber, the axons coming through. This yellow blob here is um, uh, representing the pelvic plexus where they end here and then some also end at the bladder. And the green little ones are the postganglionic um, axons. Um, another detail that could uh, definitely be asked on exam questions are neurotransmitters and receptors. Um, so if you uh, also recall back from medical school, the neurotransmitters of the parasympathetic system is acetylcholine, both at the ganglion level and at the bladder level. Um, for the receptors, there are two different types of receptors in the parasympathetic um, pathway. So at the ganglion, uh, which would be at your pelvic plexus or in the bladder wall, those would be nicotinic um, receptors. And then at the, uh, the postganglionic um, uh, target, it would be a muscarinic receptor in the bladder wall itself, which causes detrusor muscle contraction. So now we're going to switch gears to the sympathetic pathway. Again, there's going to be preganglionic neurons and postganglionic neurons. The preganglionic neurons of the sympathetic pathway are located in the thoracolumbar region of the spinal cord. So you need to remember T11 to L2. Um, those axons of the preganglionic neurons will then travel through the sympathetic chain and then they'll um, target the postganglionic neurons, which are located in the inferior mesenteric ganglion or in the pelvic plexus. Then those postganglionic axons will then travel through hypogastric nerves to the effector organs. So that in this image here um, looks like the red uh, lines are the preganglionic sympathetic uh, fibers running through the sympathetic chain, running down. This right here is the inferior mesenteric ganglion, which is one target, and then the pelvic plexus is another target. And then the blue fibers here are representing the postganglionic sympathetic fibers uh, targeting the bladder and the bladder base. As far as the neurotransmitters for the sympathetic pathway, you have both acetylcholine, which is at the ganglion, and then norepinephrine, which is at the bladder. As far as the receptors, uh, again, you have nicotinic receptors in the sympathetic ganglion. And then at the target organ, you have both alpha receptors that are located at the bladder base and bladder neck, which will lead to closure of the outlet. And then beta receptors, which are in the uh, bladder body, which um, lead to detrusor muscle relaxation. And those two are important uh, receptors as they're both targeted by uh, pharmacologic agents. Now to talk about the somatic pathway. The somatic pathway involves your motor neurons, the efferent pathway. Those motor neurons are located in the ventral horn, otherwise known as the onus nucleus. So that will um, sometimes come up on test questions as well. And that'll be located in S3 and S4. Those neurons will travel through the pudendal nerve and innervate the external sphincter muscle. 
in your sensory pathway or afferent pathway, you'll have uh, neurons that travel via the pelvic, hypogastric, and pedendal nerves to the dorsal root ganglia of the lumbosacral spinal cord. Those uh, neurons will monitor bladder volume and amplitude of bladder contraction via both myelate, myelinated, which would be A delta, and unmyelinated C fibers within the bladder wall. And so again, in this picture, the somatics here, the sensory is this sort of lighter blue that's coming, fr um, uh, coming from the sphincter muscle, as well as the motor neuron here is the red coming from the sphincter muscle, or going to the sphincter muscle, sorry. So let's talk about uh, the actual function of bladder filling and voiding. Filling and voiding, you know, the two main functions I mentioned earlier uh, that the bladder performs is organized as on and off switching circuits. And so there's a reciprocal relationship between the bladder and the outlet. So to be able to void, the bladder needs to do one thing and the outlet needs to do another. And then it's um, the reverse for storage. So let's talk about storage or, um, and when I said these on off circuits, those are predominantly these reflex arcs. Um, and so there's a storage reflex or otherwise known as a guarding reflex arc that's, um, that's, uh, that's used during uh, storage. It's really activated during bladder filling. Um, and then it's organized primarily by the spinal cord. Um, so this is not voluntary. And then there's an involuntary increase in external sphincter activity during bladder filling to help close the outlet. So the reflex itself starts with bladder filling and there's afferent firing from the bladder to say that the bladder is filling or full. Then there's, uh, that goes to the spinal cord and that, goes, that then leads to sympathetic outflow to excite both the bladder neck and the urethra. Um, and then sympathetic outflow here showing where it's inhibiting the detrusor muscle from contracting. And then also there's a reflex that goes to the pedendal motor neuron to the, excite the external sphincter muscle to help it contract as well. Now there's a reflex also for voiding. That's organized in the brain as opposed to um, predominantly in the spinal cord. And that's because it's under voluntary control. It's mediated by the spinal bulbous spinal pathway that passes through the pontine micturation center, which is um, shown here in blue. So that's the, the blue arrows are the spinal bulbous spinal pathway. And so what does that reflex look like? You have bladder distension, which again causes afferent activity um, that passes through uh, the spinal cord and, the, and then up to the brain to the periaqueductal gray matter. That then activates the spinal bundle pathway through the um, ponte micturation center. What that does then leads to inhibition of the sympathetic outf um, outflow and pedendal outflow to the urethra that's shown in red here. And then it'll stimulate the parasympathetic outflow to the bladder, which is shown here in this green, and to the internal sphincter smooth muscle to allow for voiding. So now that that's a pretty quick overview of the normal physiology of the lower urinary tract, if you actually saw a patient come into your clinic with voiding dysfunction or voiding complaints um, and a neurologic condition, how would you evaluate them? And so for the residents out there, always remember when you're evaluating a patient, especially for the oral boards, you wanna perform a complete history and physical first. And so what does your history entail? Your history, in your history, you're gonna to wanna to, um, elicit um, uh, the patient's voiding symptoms, the onset and duration of those symptoms, especially in relation to their neuro neurologic event. You wanna ask them, you know, voiding symptoms such as um, 
uh, for storage symptoms, sorry, such as frequency, urgency, nocturia, and urinary incontinence symptoms, as well as um, asking about voiding symptoms, which are um, more obstructive symptoms like urinary hesitancy, valsalva voiding, or urinary intermittency. You'll also want to get a past medical history, past surgical history for women and OBGYN history, and then also get any further neurologic history from the patient. As far as the physical exam, you want to do a complete general exam. Specifically, you'd want to look at the patient's back and spine and see if there's any sacral dimpling or hair tuft. That might be an indication that they have spina bifida. Um, in men, you'll want to include a DRE and a prostate exam to assess their prostate size. In women, you'll want to perform a pelvic exam. And you'll also want to perform a, um, a basic neuro exam uh, specific to these uh, um, neural pathways. You'll want to do sensory testing of the genitalia, and that'll give you information about the, um, the sensory somatics if they're still intact. You can do a basic motor testing to look at you know, lower extremity strength. You'll want to do a rectal exam for anal sphincter tone. And you may also want to um, examine uh, some of the neuromuscular reflexes that are specific to some of the sacral roots. So that would be like a bulbal cavernosis reflex, um, where you would squeeze either the um, uh, head of the penis at the glands or the clitoris of a woman, and that would cause an anal sphincter contraction. Um, an anal reflex, which would be uh, stroking the skin around the anus or the perineum and looking again for an anal sphincter uh, contraction. Or a cremasteric reflex, where you would, uh, in men, where you would stroke the inner thigh and look for um, the ipsilateral testicle to pull up. As far as diagnostics, a urinalysis um, would be recommended, especially in patients that may have some irritative voiding symptoms and you'd want to rule out any infectious um, etiology. Blood work, a basic metabolic panel is usually recommended, especially, um, particularly, sorry, um, checking renal function, so a creatinine and a GFR. A bladder scan to assess post-void residual, uh, uh, again, if patients are describing especially obstructive voiding symptoms. A non-invasive urinflow, again, if patients are describing a lot of uh, obstructive urinary symptoms. And as far as imaging, um, a renal ultrasound is probably a good place to start for most neurogenic bladder patients uh, to assess their upper tract. That being said, if something's picked up on that, say you see um, large kidney stones, you may then need to follow that up with a CT stone protocol to further assess those. If you saw hydronephrosis in the absence of any stones, you may need a CT urogram to assess that, or even a VCUG to look for reflux. And then if you saw a lot of scarring or atrophy of the kidney, you may consider nuclear renal scans to look at um, the uh, split function of the kidney. Neurodynamics um, uh, can be considered in patients as well, especially uh, neurogenic patients where you may have suspicion of any impaired bladder compliance. Um, and cystoscopy is generally not recommended these days on a routine basis for neurogenic bladder patients, um, uh, but is recommend, you know, of course you would follow recommendations if the patient had any history of hematuria, either gross or microscopic hematuria. So let's talk about now the characterization of voiding symptoms by the level of the lesion. And uh, the reason I broke it up this way is because there are very characteristic symptom patterns and urodynamic findings that are dependent on the level or location of the lesion. And so generally speaking, we're talking about above the pontine micturation center and then between the brainstem and the, sac um, and the sacrum and then uh, below the sacrum. So let's break that down even further. 
So lesions above the brainstem or suprapontine lesions, um, uh, have, how I have organized this is to um, split it up into what the detrusor muscle does, how the sphincter muscle behaves, and then um, whether sensation is intact or not. And so this is the pattern that you would see in a suprapontine lesion. The detrusor muscle will be overactive. The sphincter muscle would be coordinated. So both we're talking about both the striated muscle and the smooth muscle will be coordinated and sensation will be intact. So the bottom line is these patients will have um, detrusor overactivity with complete emptying because their sphincter muscles are coordinated. What does that actually look like? What would the patient complain of? They'll complain of overactive bladder symptoms such as frequency, urgency, nocturia, even urge urinary incontinence. And examples of um, neurologic examples of these are, you know, a CVA, traumatic brain injury, brain tuber, tumors, cerebral palsy, Parkinson's disease, and dementia. <clears throat> Multi-system atrophy um, will also uh, is also considered a suprapontine lesion. But um, remember, again, this is a testable question. In, um, in multi-system atrophy, uh, they'll have an open bladder neck. So the smooth sphincter um, will be open at rest. Now um, I'm going to break up the suprasacral spinal cord lesions between the brainstem and T6 and then T6 to S2. So if we look at brainstem to T6 lesions, the detrusor muscle again will be overactive. The sphincter muscle will be discoordinated, so they'll have DSD. Both the striated sphincter muscle and the smooth sphincter muscle will be um, uh, dyssynergic and then their sensation will be absent. So the bottom line here is they'll have detrusor overactivity with DSD and incomplete bladder emptying with a functional obstruction because of their DSD. What does that look like? What would the, the patient complain of? They'll complain of overactive symptoms like frequency, urgency, nocturia, and urgent continence, but they'll also have this functional obstruction from their DSD with incomplete emptying and possibly even high detrusor pressures while voiding or while trying to void. Um, these patients also above T6 will have autonomic dysreflexia responses to stimuli below the level of injury. And so examples of um, these type of lesions would be spinal cord injuries, uh, spinal tumors, spinal cord infarctions, disc disease, spinal stenosis, and also multiple sclerosis. So I'm going to do a little sidebar here about autonomic dysreflexia. Um, that is an acute massive disordered autonomic response to specific stimuli in patients with spinal cord injuries above T6. Um, they could be stimuli, um, a lot of, sorry, a lot of common stimuli uh, for autonomic dysreflexia are actually GU stimuli, such as a, a bladder over distension or a full bladder or a UTI. Um, could also happen from fecal impaction and constipation, pressure sores. It could be even something that seems so minor, like an ingrown toenail can cause autonomic dysreflexia. And what does the patient feel when they have it, when they experience it? They get a pounding headache, severe hypertension, and they'll have flushing and diaphoresis above the level of their lesion, as well as bradycardia. And what do you do if you see a patient that's experiencing autonomic dysreflexia? You want to uh, reverse whatever that stimuli is. So for example, if their bladder is very full and overdistended, you're gonna wanna catheterize them immediately and empty their bladder. Um, if they're fecally impacted, you're gonna wanna disimpact them. If uh, they have you know, something, you know, a belt too tight on them, you're gonna wanna loosen that up. All right, so back to uh, the level of lesions now. So now we're gonna look at T6 to S2 lesions. 
This looks similar to the ones above D6, but I've highlighted one um, very specific um, difference. They're, um, they will have the Drusser muscle overactivity, they will have DSD, but their smooth sphincter will be um, coordinated. So they'll really only have striated sphincter dysinergia. And again, their sensation will be absent. They're again going to look very similar to the other um, patients that were above T6, again, with overactive bladder symptoms and functional obstruction. And um, also the examples are the same. Now below S2, you'll have um, a pattern where the detrusor muscle will now be areflexic and the sphincter muscle will be competent, but it would be fixed and non-relaxing. So the striated sphincter will be fixed and the smooth muscle sphincter will be open. And again, they'll have absent sensation. So what does this um, look like? This is gonna look like a patient that has urinary retention and also may have stress urinary incontinence because their striated sphincter muscle um, cannot contract as a guarding reflex because it's fixed. Um, examples of these would be cauda equina syndrome, um, radical pelvic surgery, such as an APR or radical hysterectomy or proctocolectomy, um, mostly because of disruption of the pelvic plexus um, and as well as trauma, which could also disrupt the pelvic plexus. Um, as far as spinal cord injuries, there is um, something called spinal shock. And so that'll happen uh, acutely after a spinal cord injury at any level. And what that looks like initially is an acontractile detrusor muscle. They'll have a closed urethra and sphincter, and they'll have loss of sensation. And so what they'll have, what they'll look like is they'll have urinary retention, but be continent because of their closed urethra and sphincter. This could last days to months. And generally speaking, um, uh, I advise my patients it could be anywhere from six to 12 weeks. Now, if their spinal cord injury is above S2 after this, the period of spinal shock, then they'll um, uh, convert over to the pattern that I had described previously, where they'll have detrusor overactivity symptoms um, and uh, possibly DSD as well. So now that you know all the different pathophysiology of neuro neurogenic bladders, let's talk about treatments. So the goals of treatment when you're seeing a patient um, with suspected neurogenic bladder is to protect their upper tract function. You wanna minimize complications such as infections and stones. You wanna provide an acceptable and reasonable means of draining their bladder. And you wanna to help to maintain urinary incontinence. So I'm gonna break up the treatment options between um, uh, the two different functions of the bladder, meaning storage and, um, and voiding. And so for treatments for failure to store, you could have a failure to store because of or overactivity or an impaired compliance. And those options include behavioral modifications. So always remember when you're test taking, the first line option is always you know, uh, a conservative treatment. So that would be behavioral modifications like time voiding, pelvic floor exercises. Um, external collecting devices could be used um, such as for men, like a condom catheter. Um, medications um, for detrusor overactivity, like the anticholinergics and beta-3 agonists that are on the market. Um, Botox injections. So now we're talking about third-line therapies for overactive bladder, like Botox injections, PTNS, and sacral neuromodulation. And then the last line would be, um, could, you could offer someone an augmentation cystoplasty. Now, um, if, their failure, if the patient's failure to store is due to an outlet deficiency, um, again, 
behavioral modifications such as pelvic floor exercises, time voiding, again, external collection devices, um, specifically for men like a condom catheter. And then here, this is where um, the treatment options um, diverge from the previous one, where you could offer patients uh, urethral bulking agents um, for their outlet or sling procedures, um, artificial urinary sphincters. Um, uh, you could offer someone a bladder neck closure, and that's especially um, a good option to use for patients who have devastated urethras um, due to urethral erosion from chronic um, uh, catheterization in women. And then lastly would be a urinary diversion. Now, if we look at treatments for failure to empty, um, if the failure to empty is due to detrusor areflexia, of course, there's catheterization. So you can offer patients intermittent catheterization as well as um, or, or chronic indwelling catheter. And uh, you could either offer a fully, an indwelling urethral Foley catheter versus a suprapubic tube. Um, my personal preference in women is to offer them all suprapubic tubes because of the risk of urethral erosion in women um, with a chronic indwelling urethral catheter. Um, uh, this may be more applicable to women who have shorter urethras and less urethral resistance. You could, um, they could still void, but use Criday and Valsalva maneuvers to empty their bladder. Sacral neuromodulation um, does have an indication for non-obstructive urinary retention, albeit the success rates are not as good as the success rates seen with overactive bladder and with success rates um, usually around 50%. And then um, urinary diversion. If the um, failure to empty is due to DSD, then again, you can offer catheterizations like, we, um, like I mentioned earlier. Um, external sphincterotomy, that would be um, more applicable in men where an external sphincterotomy could be done in combination with an external collecting device like a condom catheter. Um, uh, other options are Botox injections that are injected directly into the, into the external sphincter muscle as opposed to into the detrusor muscle itself. And then again, urinary diversion. So, um, so, in, so wrapping all this up, um, you know, I could make some, um, we could, you know, you can conclude different things, but what the residents really want to know in conclusion is what do I really need to study? What do I need to learn? So I've um, outlined five things that I think that it's really important for you guys to study and be sure that you are well-versed in going into your exams. One is that you should know the autonomic innervation of the lower urinary tract. And I also included that you should know the neurotransmitters and the receptor types because those are testable questions. You should know the neural pathways for the guarding reflex and voiding reflex, because that may be asked. You'll wanna know the characteristic symptom patterns and UDS findings based on level of lesion, like I outlined earlier. You'll wanna know how to recognize autonomic dysreflexia and how to treat that. And you'll also wanna know how to treat common neurourologic disorders. So that was a quick review.